Roller coasters. Who likes them? Let me see hands. About half. Who hates them? About a third. Who puts up with them? Because you're forced to go on with your friends and family? When I was a, I want to say a freshman or sophomore in high school, I went on my very first roller coaster ride. We took a trip down to Walt Disney World, and my friends shamed me into going on Space Mountain. I'd never been on a roller coaster. I know some of y'all are going, that's not a real roller coaster. That's just a fast ride through some dark tunnels. I was scared to death. I almost backed out. I'm walking. Now they have this long trail you're going on to get up to the point where you get ready to get on the spaceship, right? And the whole time I'm getting up there, my heart's getting faster and faster and faster. Oh, I'm going to be sick. I can't go on this. Oh, come on. You can do it. Don't be a wimp, David. Okay, I'll get on there. I get on, that thing comes down, and the belts go to cross you, and you're strapped in, and I'm grabbing tight hold of the things on my, going across my shoulders. And At that time, I didn't know it doesn't do loop-to-loops. It doesn't go upside down. It's just a fast ride up and down. And Of course, you go, and you hear this. And you get to the top. And, of course, one of my friends put me. The front. And I'm looking. And I don't know that the, the, actually the fastest ride is in the very back. I found that out later. Now I ride the back, back car. That's where I want to be because it's, it's whipping you around. But at the beginning, they put me in the very front seat. Come on, David, you got to get up there. You, we want you to have a full experience. And you go down and it's... And whipping around back and forth, and you know, in Space Mountain, it's it's pitch black in there, almost pitch black, just little lights. And I'm trying to follow the tracks and see where I'm going to go, and getting jerked around left and right, and you come out of there with whiplash almost. I didn't have any control. Once I got on the on the, I had bladder control. I did have bladder control. I know what you're thinking. I'm on the ride. Up until that point where I was strapped in, I could have gotten off anytime I want. I was in total control of, well, as much as my friends would let me. But once I was strapped in, I was there for the duration. What seemed like 30 minutes, which is actually 30 seconds. We had no control. In the book of Esther, we see a people who have been left in Babylon. Now it's become Medo-Persia. It's become uh, another country has been ta- it's, it's taken over Babylon. And they've been left behind and they feel abandoned in many cases by God. The rest of the people, the rest of the nation of Israel has been returned back to Israel. They've gone back to rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. And here's some people left behind in Medo-Persia. Without any real control over their lives. And that may be some of us in this room this morning. We're just kind of along for the ride. We've been thrust into this point in our lives 
We've, been, we've got situations placed before us, and we're just along for the ride. We have no control, much like on the roller coaster. You have no control of where I'm going to go. You just feel like you're along for the ride. And the book of Esther is very interesting because God's name is not mentioned once in this book. But throughout the whole book, you can see his fingerprints all through it. And these people who feel like they've been abandoned, they feel like they've been neglected, left behind, are really still in the very palms of God as he remembers them there in that land so far away. For many of us, we like, to feel, we like to feel like we're Daniel, always choosing the right thing regardless of the consequences. Hershey York says, I'm really much more like Esther, an imperfect vessel, stumbling my way into God's use in spite of myself. Anybody else feel that way? That's me. In my mind, I picture myself, I'm this Daniel. I'm Joseph. I'm choosing my path. I'm choosing my destiny. The direction that God wants me to go. I chose this college. I went into this mission field. We did this. But really, in many ways, God is moving us according to His plan and His will, and we're just along for the ride. But it's in those moments when we submit ourselves to the ride that God is going to use us in spite of ourselves. More has been done through our family once we finally submitted and said, God, forget my talents, forget my abilities as little as they are. Here I am. And in spite of all of our mistakes, in spite of all the things that we've done and the lack of language ability in, in Korean and Chinese, and lack of leadership abilities, lack of this, lack of that, in spite of who I am as a person, God uses us anyway. And that's really kind of the story of Esther here. These people who have been abandoned, they feel maybe sometimes abandoned by God, left behind. They're just along for the ride. They have no control. They're in this land far, far away. At least the, those who went back to Jerusalem are kind of in control of themselves. They're building their city. They're building their temple. They're, they're making a life for themselves. Those left behind are kind of still there, stuck. And if you remember anything about the story of, of, of Esther prior to getting there, under Nebuchadnezzar, Israel had been captured, exiled, a hundred years before the writing of, the, of this, the story that takes place. A hundred years previously, Nebuchadnezzar came in on three different occasions and took the children of Israel back to Babylon. That's the story of Daniel. That's how we get that. While they're there, Daniel prays. He, he, he looks at this, the Word of God, he looks at Scriptures, and he realizes that this was not a permanent situation. And he goes to his knees and he prays and asks forgiveness from God. Say, so God, we need you to restore us back to our land. And he did. 
a new king came up. And you have the story of Nehemiah. And how he comes in one day, sad face before the king, which you never do if you're the cupbearer, right? The king says, what's wrong? My land is, is in peril. My land is, is desolate. The, the city that I love, that I, the, of my people, has is, is been destroyed. The walls have been torn down. The temple is gone. He sends back Ezra to go rebuild the temple. Sends back Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. Daniel makes some prophecies. And he eventually dies. Then Esther comes on the scene. And this whole story of Esther. Esther had an, we don't know who the, really the author was. It's an anonymous author. It doesn't say so-and-so wrote this. But tradition says that it was Mordecai, her uncle, who at, at some point was placed into, at the very end of the story, we see he's placed into a pl- place of importance and position in the, in the king's court, maybe as, even as much as the prime minister. And he's able to then write and recount the story that takes place. In the story, we see the first chapter of Esther. The king, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, the Greeks called him, throws a party, a week-long party. Not just the party with Oreos and ice cream. It was one of those kind of parties that you heard about in high school or maybe experienced in high school and college. And at the end of the party, he's all liquored up and drunk and he decides he wants to show off his beautiful wife who's in another part of the court having a party for her the, for the other ladies. He says, woman, get in here. Come dance for us. Show yourself off. And she says, no. Well, what do you mean No. And the other men in the, that are with him said, you can't let her defy you like that. If she defies you, all, the other, all of our other wives are going to defy us as well. And we know that can't take place. So he deposes her. In a fit of rage, cuts her off. Says, I will not see her again. Removes the crown from her head. Doesn't have her killed, but removes the crown. And she's off in her own area. And chapter 2 starts out when he finally kind of comes to, sobers up, and says he remembers Vashti, his wife. He remembers what happened. As a side note, they're not really part of the the whole message, but it says in chapter 2, verse 1, after these things, when the anger of the king had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. In a very real way, his actions there in chapter 1 exemplify what James talks about in James 1.20 where he says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, Satan wants us to give in to our anger, to give in to our frustrations, and to give in to our base emotions. And it's possible when he woke up in the morning, he realized what his jealous anger had caused him to do. But at that point, it was too late. He backed himself into a corner. And Satan was 
all of ecstatic. But we must all heed James's, James's exhortation to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. When we do that, we won't be backed into a corner like the king was. See, as a result of his anger, as a result of his jealousy, as a result of his pride being taken a hit, and him taking offense at that, he had cast her aside, and now he had to have the biggest Miss, Miss Persia contest in all the world. He had to go out and find himself a new king, queen. He's, so he sends his men out to scour the countryside far and wide, looking for a new queen. And spoiler alert, we know the end of the story. This new queen is used by God to save her people. This new queen, who's just along for the ride, is used by God to save her people in the end. But that's for future weeks. The point is, even though we don't always see God moving explicitly in our own lives, that doesn't mean he is not quietly working in the background. You may look at your own life today and say, I'm just working as a CPA, I'm working in construction, I'm working as a truck driver, I'm working as a teacher, I'm working, I'm retired, I'm whatever. I'm just an emergency worker. I don't see God working directly in my life. I'm not a pastor, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a Sunday school teacher working with kids. I'm not baptizing anybody this afternoon. I'm just along for the ride. You may not be able to see God working specifically and explicitly in your life, but it does not mean he's working through you in the background to make a difference in your world around you. Don't ever get over the fact that God is working in and through you to make a difference in the people around you every single day. No matter what you're doing, no matter what your profession. So let's take a look at the story of Esther this morning. And keep that in your mind. Because that's kind of what this point is, what we're looking at today. Here in chapter 2, Esther chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, we see that the king was searching out for a new queen. He says, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins into the harem and Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of all the women. And let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young, man who, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleases the queen, the king, and he did so rather. See, this is kind of like a third century Cinderella story where she's gone back to her home, left her, her slipper behind, her shoe behind. I'm not going to take off my shoe. I don't want to kill you guys this morning. She left her shoe behind, and now the, the prince, the king, has to go and find the woman who belongs to this shoe. He's searching high and low all around the countryside, trying to find this one girl. And in the Miss, Miss Persia contest, the king sends his men out, go and find all the most beautiful maidens of the land and bring them back to the harem. And for one year, they are primped and they're pampered and they get their, their facials and they get their manicures and they get their massages. They get all the good food. 
for a whole year, they're brought back. Searched out. Reminds me that God is also searching for us. First Chronicles chapter 6, verse 9, 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Just like the king was searching high and low throughout the land of Persia, looking for just the right woman. God is looking and examining your hearts today and my heart today to find those whose hearts are completely devoted to him. Where's your heart today? Easter was last week. We celebrated the resurrection. Had a great time. We came and we rejoiced. And God says, where are you today as opposed to last week? Last week, everybody came. Last week, we had a great time together. We lifted up and exalted the name of Christ. But what about Monday through Saturday? What about the rest of the year? Where's your heart in relation to God? The rest of the year. We like to celebrate Christmas and Easter, right? Those are two great holidays. We, we spend a month or more looking forward to the birth of Christ at Christmas time. We spend weeks looking forward to the resurrection of Christ at Easter time. And we can say, my heart is completely devoted to him. I'm giving up Facebook for, in preparation for Easter. I'm giving up this. I'm going to give up sugary foods. I'm going to give up Diet Coke. I'm going to give up... Name your poison in preparation for Easter. But what about the rest of the year? Where's your heart? See, God is looking. His eyes in this room this morning. He's looking over the congregation. He's looking through at all of us. At our hearts to see where are we in relation to our devotion and commitment to him today. You know what he says? When I find you, I'll never forsake you. When he finds that person, he says, I will never forsake you. Think of the parable of lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. Jesus said, he says, What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the one lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors and he says, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I'll tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous who don't need repentance. See, God is searching out among us this morning those who are completely committed to Him. Those who are completely devoted to Him. His eyes are roaming to and fro over the whole land to find those people who are committed to Him. So He can say, rejoice with me. Rejoice. Let's have a party together. Let's rejoice together because you are now in his presence. And Hebrews says, he, is never, he will never leave you nor forsake you. At the lowest point in your life, he's there. At the highest point in your life, he is there. At the point where you've gone sideways from him, he is there. He will never leave you. As we mentioned earlier, the Jews also felt abandoned. Look in chapter Back in Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa, 
the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Two things here. Those left behind felt abandoned. Those left behind have been stripped from their land 100 years earlier, stripped from their homeland 100 years earlier, and now they're stuck in Medo-Persia. They're stuck there because they chose not to go back at some point. And now they're there serving the new king. You know that the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, started during that, during that, that time, the hundred years that they were in exile from Israel. That's where all the synagogues started because they needed a place to go and worship. They realized they needed a place to come together and worship on a regular basis. That their relationship with God was important enough to develop these synagogues where they came together and studied the word of God because they didn't have their homeland. But additionally, Esther, imagine how she felt. At some point, her mother and father died. The Bible doesn't say how it happened. Left behind. No family. So her uncle takes her, takes her under his wing and adopts her into his family. This morning, you may feel abandoned by God. This morning, you may feel you're in a place where God does not see you. You, are, you feel everything is going wrong. God has not abandoned you. Just like he didn't abandon the Israelites in, in this land, he didn't abandon Esther when her parents died, he has not abandoned you. One of my daughters, we took her to, took all our kids at one point to the flea market. That glorious place where you can get stuffed. The unstuffed get restuffed and the stuffed get unstuffed. And we're walking around the flea market and Regina's counting heads. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. I felt like she was doing the waltz. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. All of a sudden, she counted one, two. There was one missing. That's a huge place. And she begins looking far and wide. She's, Where, where's Tori? Where is our daughter? Where is my favorite second-born daughter? Not the favorite daughter, the favorite second-born daughter. Because I know my girls are going to bring us against me if I don't say that. All of a sudden, we hear this scream. And an aisle or two over, we, we run around the corner from one aisle to the next, and sure enough, there's this group of people surrounding Tori. I forget how old she was. She was pretty small. I think Karis was a baby. A group of people surround Tori, and every time they try to get close to her, are you okay? Ah! They'd step back. Can we help you find you? Ah! There was no doubt that nobody was going to take this child. She was there all by herself, away from her family. 
Now, I'm sure it was her fault. She let go of the hand she was supposed to be holding. But here she is scared to death in the middle of this huge crowd, this huge place, and mom and dad are not around. She was lost. She was abandoned. She felt. Until we got there and found her again. See, in the story, it'd be very easy for the Jews to feel like they've been abandoned by God. It's very easy for us at times to feel like we've been abandoned by God as well. To feel like there's, I don't hear from God, I can't see God, I, I don't hear His voice. I'm reading the Word of God and maybe it's dry right now and just, the Bible is not speaking to me today. I'm listening to songs on the radio and they're just not perking me up. It happens. But even when we're in the midst of the slump, even when we're in the midst of that desert, even when we feel like we have been abandoned by God, He has not abandoned us. Tori was at the flea market looking around. Mom and Dad left me. But Regina had not forgotten to keep counting. Granted, we were an aisle away. But Regina was on the lookout. Tori hadn't been abandoned. She may have felt that way, but she hadn't. We have not been abandoned by God either. So first of all, we've been searched out. Second of all, we have not been abandoned. Thirdly, selected. Verses 8 through 10. So, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, when many young women were gathered in Susa in the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. The young women pleased him and won his favor. And the young woman, rather, I'm sorry, I'm talking about Esther. And he quickly provided for her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven young, seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and the young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai commanded her to not make it known. This young woman, Esther, one of only eight special young ladies, selected by the eunuch, advanced ahead of all the other girls. Now, we don't know how many women were selected to be part of this harem. We can imagine it's probably hundreds of young women selected from all over the land to come take part in this beauty contest. And Esther was selected, was one of eight out of all those to become part of that harem, the special part of the harem. She pleased him. God was even in the midst of that selection process. You think that she'd have this competition where she's having to stand up there with her swimsuit or maybe playing the saxophone or singing a song much like on The Voice and these other shows that are out there today or whatever beauty pageants that are out there. But it says that she was selected because God's favor shone on her. Even in the midst of this, God was in it. In the midst of this beauty pageant, in the midst of being abandoned by her family, in the midst of all that was going on, God was moving in her life. Remember, we're looking for fingerprints of God. 
We're looking for the fingerprints of God in this book. And in the midst of her life, even these little minor details, God was in it. God had not abandoned her. God had set her apart and specially selected her, excuse me, to become part of this next phase of the process. You know, as children of God, as God's children, He has called you out. The Bible says that you could not respond to God if He hadn't first prompted your heart. There is some measure of how God's sovereignty and man's choice works in there together, and I don't know how all that works. It's beyond me. My finite pea brain can't comprehend it. But I do know the Bible speaks of God calling us and choosing us from among all the nation, people of the world to become his special child. If you are a child, God's child this morning, rejoice in that because you have been selected for something great. You may think, I'm just in this menial job. I'm, I'm doing something that's nonsensical. I'm just along for the ride. You have been selected for something great. God wants to use you for something great. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter your education background. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you smell like, what you dress like. God has selected you for a purpose. It's like he selected Esther for a special purpose, to save her people down the road. Lastly, she was elevated to a position of importance. Look at verse 15. It says, When the turn came for it, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except that Haggai, what Haggai the king's eunuch, who was in charge of her, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He was also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Esther had gone from this lowly Jewish girl with no future, with no importance, just an orphan, adopted by an uncle, moved into the harem for a year, takes part in this grooming process and manicures and all that stuff, and now she's been elevated to the place of queen. The fingerprints of God are on every aspect of her life. Her natural beauty and character stood out, not the fake adornments that these other girls tried to bring in. So the Bible's, I love that. She says, she said, I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna take anything in to be with the king except for what the eunuch suggests. She didn't try to show off all of her grand adornments. So I'm just gonna be myself. Her natural beauty. Her character stood out. 
and the king chose her. This is God's providence on display. The fingerprints of God in this land. We all wonder what it would be like to be a Daniel or a Joseph serving in the court of the king. The reality is that most of us will not get that chance. We are rather called to serve in thousands of small ways every single day. Sometimes swept up in circumstances beyond our control. But God is always in control, even when we can't see him directly. In our lives, look for those God moments. In our lives, look for the fingerprints of God directing us. A quote by Charles Spurgeon. Remember, we've been talking about living life on life and living our lives of faith. And I believe this is where Esther and Mordecai were. Charles Spurgeon said, There are plenty of people who believe God, who believe God after a superfine kind of fashion, fashion up on the edge of the moon or at the back of the north wind, but they do not believe the Lord in their shops and on their beds and in their kitchens. They cannot believe as to the bread and the cheese or the house rent and the raiment. They talk of believing in the Lord of eternity, but for this day and for the next week they are full of fear. True faith is everyday faith. The faith of the patriarchs was a faith which dwelt in the tents and fed sheep. We want a faith which will endure the wear and the tear of life, the practical realizing faith which God trusts, which trusts in God from hour to hour. I love that. That is the faith of Esther. That is the faith of Mordecai. That is the faith of this church and that we should have. The faith, that, the truth, that everyday faith the trust for the rent, the trust for our clothes, the trust for the bread and the cheese, the trust for everything we do, the trust for the traveling mercies, the trust to get us from here, point A to point B, the trust for health, the trust for God's providence in our lives, that everyday faith. Remember, even though we don't always see God moving explicitly in our own lives, It doesn't mean he's not quietly working in the background. Despite these moments when we feel like God is absent, we can be confident that he still loves us. God loves you. God is moving and working and directing your life and my life today. He has not abandoned us, he has not left us out in the cold. He didn't abandon Israel. He didn't abandon Esther. He didn't abandon Mordecai. When all, when all the rest of the people left and went back to Israel to build the temple and to build Jerusalem, he didn't leave those behind with no record of himself. God has not abandoned you. We can rejoice in that this morning. Let's close in prayer this morning as Drew comes up to lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you and trust you and praise you for who you are. I rejoice, Lord God, that you are in our midst this morning. You're not some God who's just way out there somewhere. You're not just up there in the heavens looking down, sucking on your espresso while we're down here. 
Lord, you are right here in our midst today, just as you were with Esther and Mordecai. You are right there in their midst, directing their footsteps, directing their futures. And we can trust and rely on you today. I rejoice, Lord Jesus, that your spirit indwells me and indwells all believers here, speaking to us on a regular basis. We can trust in you. We can put our faith in you because you have proven yourself faithful to us over and over and over and over again. Though we may feel like we're just long for the ride. There's nothing special about us. Lord, you have selected us out of the midst. You selected us from the whole group of people and called us your own. The child of God. Elevated us to a place of your sons and daughters. Freed us from the burden and the bondage of sin in our own lives. All we must do is call upon you. Put our trust and our hope in you. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. Thank you for being my Heavenly Father. Thank you for being my providence, directing my steps. Even when I can't see you, you are there. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing this final song this morning. There is a healer.